Why would God allow Jesus to go through that? Well, first of all, it's not simply that he allowed Jesus to go through that. It's that he wanted him to go through it. As painful as it must have been for the father to see this and witness this, it was his will. Isaiah 53.10 prophesied it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And this because God found it necessary for our salvation. Because what we find in God's character is perfect moral holiness and perfect justice. We also find that he demands a punishment for sin. We expect that. Sin and evil has to be punished if there is a perfectly just God. It it can't be ignored. And this is a punishment that you and I could not bear ourselves. It would have meant eternal separation from God. How terrifying it would be if that were all we could say about God, that he's just, that he's perfectly holy. But hope comes when we combine the fact that he is perfectly holy with the fact that he is also perfect in his love. Loving in his very essence, he dearly loves and cares for those he created. And that brings us to the cross. Where, as it has been said, his justice and love merge. Or what his justice demanded, his love supplied. Abraham told Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. We sang about that this morning. The lamb of God. So, as we study this passage today, please, please understand this. Don't let this just go in one ear and out the other. Please take this in. What Christ went through on the cross, he went through for you. He endured this for you and for me. So that for all who would believe in Jesus and look to him in faith, God could pardon their offenses and adopt them as his beloved children. It's so that you and I could enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the great privilege of studying this text this morning together. Oh, Lord, please open our hearts to you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be ready to receive. May all the focus be on you and on your son and be glorified, Lord, in us. Father, we... This morning, remember those who can't be with us, those who are sick, those who are suffering from illnesses and injuries, for those who are away from us, uh, who are traveling, um, those who are in in Florida, our dear brothers and sisters there. Um, Lord, we also remember our brothers and sisters all over the world, those who are persecuted for the, the sake of your son. 
we remember especially those in the Central African Republic uh, who are persecuted, and we ask God that you continue to strengthen them. And Father, for those who are hungry, we pray that you would meet their needs. Uh, we pray, God, for improvements in their conditions um, for the whole country, but especially for our brothers and sisters there. We ask that you bless them and give them strength and give them joy and give them relief from their trials. We also remember uh, those who are working in the Dominican. We lift them up and we thank you for our partnership with them in the gospel. We ask that you bless them um, and, and the work of Jonathan Worthington. Father, we pray that we would take seriously the charge that you've given us to be your ambassadors right here. Lord, we know that there are many uh, with whom we cross paths regularly who do not know you, uh, who are dead in sin. And we pray, God, that through our words and through our lives and through our love, that Jesus would be seen in us. God, please bless our time together now, we pray. Amen. At this time, kids, you can go with Mrs. Graber. She's going to take you back to the nursery. Just a reminder, please be very cooperative and um, well-behaved as she teaches you your song for Christmas. The ancient historian Plutarch informs us that a man sentenced to crucifixion would be forced to carry the horizontal beam of his own cross. John's Gospel informs us that Jesus started out carrying his cross, but he presumably quickly became too weak to finish the job, weak from the flogging, just just this past week, I encountered a scholar who suggested that this prophecy in Psalm 22, I can count my, I, I'm sorry, I can count all my bones. I always imagined that Jesus was hanging on the cross and his ribs were, you know, kind of protruding. And, um, and so uh, that's what it was referencing. But this scholar suggested that, no, it, it was often that, in the Roman flogging, that they would lay bare the flesh and it would actually expose the bones underneath. And so if yeah, we know that Christ had already endured this flogging for us, if that's the case, then it's no great wonder that he couldn't carry his, his cross at that time, had probably lost a lot of blood. Therefore... It says in verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Cyrene was in northern Africa. It was on the other side of Egypt. It's modern-day Libya. Simon was likely a Jew whose ancestors were carried off centuries before, uh, probably uh, with the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. We don't know for sure. It's probable here that Alexander and Rufus, the ones who are identified as his sons, were well known to Mark's audience. 
of early believers in Rome. Otherwise, there's really no reason to mention them. But lo and behold, when Paul addressed the Romans in his letter there in chapter 16, he told them to say hi to Rufus for them. Same person, can't know for sure. In 1941, archaeologists in Israel discovered a burial cave outside of Jerusalem. It belonged to a first century family of Jews from Cyrene. And the ossuary found there was marked Uh, with this inscription, Alexander, son of Simon. So look at your text again. Many believe that this is the same man that that Mark has written about. And it's yet another reason to believe that the New Testament you're reading is, in fact, historically accurate. Verse 22 says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Uh, The fact that Mark translates this word for his audience uh, seems to suggest that that his audience was primarily Gentiles. He wouldn't have needed to do that for Jews. Scholars believe that Golgotha was a bare hill resembling kind of a, a smooth, rounded skull, hence the name. But the name has a double use, describing not just the appearance of the location, but signifying that it was also a place of death. Archaeologists have identified two possible locations today. Uh, The most likely one uh, has been recognized as the most probable site for many, many centuries. It's the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, To me, it's just stunning to think that you could get on a plane tonight, be in Jerusalem in the morning, and you could be standing in the very place that this took place, that where Christ was crucified. It's just, it's almost too much to think about. That, like you could stand where the soil soaked up Jesus' blood. It's amazing uh, to consider. It gives me chills. Verse 23 says, They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Myrrh was known to have narcotic qualities. Um, It was kind of like an ancient morphine. It numbed the pain. There's a tradition that the women of Jerusalem would, uh, when someone was sentenced to die and they were undergoing crucifixion, that they would uh, take this out uh, to the prisoner to relieve his suffering, kind of in accordance with Proverbs 31, what we read there, uh, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and remember their misery no more. Notice, though, that Jesus did not accept it. And I think the reason he didn't accept it was that he wasn't there to see how much pain he could get out of. He wasn't there to see how much suffering he could escape. He was there to receive the full measure of our punishment. He needed to do it with an alert mind. So he turned down the drink. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Psalm 22 prophesied, they, divided, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Roman law allowed for this. Um, technically, anyone who was crucified to death 
the, the belongings of such a person uh, were confiscated by the state. And the way that they did this was they just let the soldiers take them in most cases. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And we aren't sure what to make here of this time marker, uh, the third hour. It would be 9 a.m. Uh, there are various explanations uh, for this that we won't go into, uh, but it doesn't seem to match up with what we read in the other Gospels. Um, but it's just suffice it to say there are some explanations, but it's unlikely that this is when the crucifixion actually began. Uh, in any case, it was standard for the criminal to have his charges either attached to him or to his cross so that everyone would know what the offense was, be warned not to repeat it. And in, in the case here, Pilate had ordered it written, the king of the Jews. Uh, we find out in one of the other Gospels, I forget which one, that that was protested. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Uh, some see this as an intentional insult to the Jews. In other words, here's their king. Uh, this miserable fellow is the best they have. Others think it was simply a warning to all. Never even think of appointing your own king. You are under the authority of Rome. Either way, there's some irony here because what was written was actually true. They crucified two robbers with him, verse 27, one on his right and one on his left. Isaiah 53 had prophesied he was numbered with the transgressors. This phrase, on his right and on his left, echoes the request from James and John back in chapter 10. You remember that? Uh, Teacher, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in glory. And Jesus basically said, you sure you're ready for that? The sons of Zebedee wanted glory. Jesus tried to tell them at that time that what they were really asking for was suffering. At Golgotha, they see it. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Psalm 22 prophesied, All who mock me, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Now, of course, Jesus never actually claimed that he would destroy the temple, right? Um, They're very good at twisting his words. What did he say? We read in John that he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. So basically he's saying, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And we know he was talking not about the temple in Jerusalem, but about his own body. And so they're using this now to mock him. But there's really deep irony in this. In, in that very moment, while they were mocking him as a false prophet, they were carrying out the things that showed that he was a true prophet. Isn't that amazing? The irony. Verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Well, they got one thing right. Jesus did save others. They were probably referring to the healings that he had performed and maybe even referencing uh, Lazarus's resurrection from the dead. It was undeniable. 
It's remarkable that Jesus' opponents never denied the fact that he was a miracle worker. In fact, it really, um, there wasn't much denial of that through history until the Enlightenment. Pretty much everybody admitted that he was a miracle worker. The question is, where did the power come from? So they admitted it here. Um, they, they couldn't deny it. They were actually witnesses uh, some of this they saw with their own eyes. You remember when Jesus commanded the, the man who was paralyzed, he was on his mat, and Jesus said, rise, take your mat, and go. They were there. They were upset because it was the Sabbath. They saw it. They were there when Jesus told the man with the shriveled hand, stretch forth your hand. What did they do? They didn't say, oh, the power of God, this must be our Messiah. It says they went off and they, they tried to decide how they were going to kill him. How can we make this happen? So it's not that they lacked evidence. They saw this themselves. Such was their spiritual blindness. And here in verse 31 is where a single word makes all the difference. The word is not can't. The correct word is won't. Makes all the difference, doesn't it? He saved others, but he won't save himself. They couldn't understand his love, and so they picked the wrong word. Really, only in this sense were they correct. It would be true to say that he can't save himself if he was going to save us. He wasn't there to save himself. He was there to sacrifice himself. He was there to save us. The mockery continues, verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So he could have. Good for them that he didn't. Good for them that his love was even stronger than their mockery. And I say that because I, I assume that some of them eventually did come to believe in Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, uh, there's a, a really... Remarkable statement that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They actually came to, to know Jesus. And so I picture and, and I imagine that if a large number of priests came to believe in Jesus there through the, the preaching and the miracles in the early church, that we're going to get to heaven someday and we're going to meet some of the people who stood there and mocked Jesus and said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Isn't that amazing? But in this moment, the mockers seem to assume that Jesus is a lot like themselves. That he lived for the same things that they lived for. Impressing people, convincing people, gathering up a following. And so they told Jesus to do what they would have done if they were in his position. Show yourself, prove yourself, exalt yourself. They had no concept that Jesus' goal was the opposite of theirs. They wanted glory and honor. Jesus realized that humility comes before honor. He wasn't interested in self-exaltation. So he submitted himself to humiliation and disgrace for our sake. The glory comes later. For what it's worth, they wouldn't have believed even if he had come down from the cross. You know that, right? They had seen plenty. Their problem wasn't that they didn't have enough evidence. It was that they were hard-hearted. They were stubborn in their unbelief. 
Those who cruci- those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Of course, you're probably familiar with Luke 23 and, and the story there. Remember that? Mark doesn't feel the need to share the whole story with us here, but one of these criminals actually had a change of heart right there on the cross. Started out mocking Jesus, but something happened in him. Uh, probably experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He repented. He rebuked the other. He sought mercy from Jesus, and he received it. I love that story. I love that story because it's proof that God, no one is too far from God's grace. What a great story. Here all we hear is that he heaped insults on Jesus. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock noon. It's the time when the sun would have been the brightest. God turned out the lights. And um, I've read the critics will say, well, this one, we can prove the Bible's false here because we know that there was no eclipse during that time. (laughs) God doesn't need an eclipse. It's called a miracle. Okay. There are parallels here to the time leading up to the first Passover. I think sometimes we picture uh, it just getting dark. I remember one time when I was a kid, um, about that time, it was Good Friday, and the sky kind of got dark and it got stormy. And I remember thinking, I wonder if this is what it was like, because it was that time in the afternoon. But uh, I don't think it just kind of got a little bit dark, like the clouds went in front of the sun. Uh, what's implied here is deep darkness. And so we think back to the time before the very first Passover, when darkness covered the whole land of Egypt, not for three hours, but for three days. Exodus chapter 10. The replacement of light with darkness signaled that a curse had fallen on them. And in this case, the curse had fallen on Jesus. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And he felt it, crying out in a loud voice, verse 34, Eloi, Eloi. Lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a verbatim quote from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? You want to know what Jesus was feeling on the cross? That's why he quoted it. He was feeling it. I believe that when darkness settled in, I think Jesus felt the curse. The alienation, it was real. Jesus, the sinless one, from the moment that he accepted his assignment to receive our penalty, that's what this included. Alienation. A sense of abandonment from God. Paul expressed it in very strong terms in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it meant for Jesus to accept the assignment. Temporary. Temporary. But I think this was the worst part of the crucifixion for Jesus. Worse than the physical suffering. And it's something that when we think about Jesus went to the cross for us, um, sometimes I'm tempted. I'm, I'm kind of a wimp. I, I don't like physical pain. So sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to relate most with, you know, him taking the floggings and taking the nails. And, and, um, but really, we should not fail to appreciate the separation, the, the, the abandonment that Jesus experienced on our behalf. Verse 35, when some of those standing near this, uh, standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Now, the Aramaic word for God sounded very much like the word for Elijah. Eloi would have been easy for them to uh, mistake with Eli. And it was believed by the Jews that in times of great trouble, Elijah would come to save them. And so having that prior belief, it was all too easy for them to mistake Jesus' pain-wrenched words here with a, a call uh, to Elijah to come save them. Verse 36 says, One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Mark only shares part of the story here. In John's Gospel, it's recorded that Jesus had said, I am thirsty. And maybe you're thinking, well, he didn't want it earlier. Why does Jesus want it now? Well, this is a different drink. Earlier, it was wine mixed with myrrh. So that, that was a pain reliever. This is a thirst reliever. Wine vinegar, and anything with the word vinegar doesn't sound very refreshing to me, um, but uh, wine vinegar was the common drink of soldiers and laborers, and it was said to be even more refreshing than water, and so that's what they, they drank. And uh, some even called it the Gatorade of its day. So Jesus was very dehydrated by this point. Psalm 22 prophesied, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I don't think Jesus was trying to do something about his thirst. I think Jesus, at this point, was trying to free up his tongue. Jesus knew that he was in the final seconds of his life. And he had a very important announcement to make before he died, something he needed everyone to hear. Mark doesn't tell us what he said, only that with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last but john tells us what he said he cried out it is finished we've discussed before the beauty of that phrase the beauty of that phrase it is finished for for all who rest in christ and his work isn't that a beautiful phrase I think that's why Jesus called for the, the wine vinegar. He wanted us to hear that. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were, in fact, two curtains in the temple. 
the outer curtain kind of hung before between the forecourt and and the the temple itself. Um, that was the the outer curtain. It was visible to everyone. Uh, the inner curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And the text really doesn't tell us which curtain was torn. It's often assumed that it was the one that closed off the Holy of Holies from the sanctuary. And if that's the case, the symbolism is rich. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement was the high priest allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and only the high priest. And he would make atonement for the sins of the people. But now, on account of Christ's sacrifice, now we have Christ making this once-for-all sacrifice. And so now we have access to Jesus and the the temple curtain is torn and we can go right into the Holy of Holies. Now, the problem with thinking that it was the inner curtain that was torn is is the fact that it would not have been a public sign. It would have only been a sign for the priests. On the other hand, if the curtain was torn, if the curtain that was torn was the one that was at the entrance, it would have been public and everyone could have seen it. And it still would have signified that that God was making himself accessible because the number of Jewish traditions have pointed to the fact that something really extraordinary occurred right at the entrance where everyone could see it. Uh, These are Jewish um, sources that say this. Uh, A lot of scholars think that it was actually the, the outer curtain that was torn. I don't know for sure. Um, in any case, Mark bothers to tell us this fact. He, he tells us where the tear started. And it's, that's something you can just kind of read over um, and miss it. But it's important. It didn't start at the bottom where man could reach. It started at the top. So clearly what, what Mark is telling us here is that this was an act of God. Ben Witherington offers another angle on this, uh, another perspective that I think is very interesting. He says that rather than sending the message, rather than this tearing of the, the curtain, sending this message of come on in, everybody has access now, he suggests that it is instead a message that God had left the premises. Um. We know that the temple was God's dwelling place in some sense. And so he suggests that the tearing of the curtain was actually a sign of judgment, that God had abandoned the temple, that he had left. One final perspective to consider on the curtain tearing event is that it was intended to convey that God's spirit no longer confined to the temple, having burst through The curtain was now on the loose in the world, seeking people out, even the Gentiles. I think that's an interesting thought. If so, one of the first Gentiles to be touched by the Holy Spirit may have been the centurion. Verse 39 says he stood there in front of Jesus. He heard his cry and saw how he died and said, surely this man was the Son of God. This is basically the same testimony that the Father gave of Jesus at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son. So you have now the religious leaders. These are the people who studied the law. 
Like nonstop, it was their life to diligently study the law of Moses. Jesus even said that. That's what you guys do. They were supposedly looking for their Messiah. But when their Messiah was three feet in front of them, they're looking out on the horizon. Even now, you've got these messianic prophecies from Psalm 22 just playing out so perfectly, so vividly for them. And they're, they're just all the more blinded by their hatred and their sin. They cannot see their Messiah for who he is. But then you have the centurion. You have a Roman standing there overseeing the, the, the crucifixion whose heart had not been hardened. And he sees and he understands. Listening to his words, watching how he died. Surely this man is the son of God. What what irony. Also present there, verse 40 says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. I think it's safe to say that Mark holds these women up to us as examples of loyalty. They weren't the only ones held up as examples, as we're going to see. Jesus actually had at least a few secret followers. And uh, we learned from John's Gospel that one of them here was a member of the Sanhedrin himself. And he did not go along with their decision to condemn Jesus. We learned that from Luke. Verse 42, it says, It was preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Um, It was common practice for the Romans to extend the humiliation of, of the crucified person even beyond his death. Like, they, they were interested in humiliating him when he was alive, and they were interested in humiliating him when he was dead as well. And so they would even leave the bodies up on the cross for days uh, so that everybody could, could behold their disfigured um, appearances and so that the, the birds could pick away at the flesh. Sometimes it was even forbidden by them that anyone should even mourn the death of a criminal, um, at least in public, especially for those who were treasonous. The Roman historian Tacitus informs us that crucified traitors were also forbidden burial, making the the request of Joseph here apparently an appeal for uh, an exception. And Pilate may have been used to this because for the Jews, burial was a requirement. They even buried their enemies. That that was so important to the Jews. And according to the law of Moses, for Jesus to remain on the cross overnight during the Sabbath, that would have been a defilement of their land. So the body needs to come down. Technically, the Sabbath starts at sundown that day. So Joseph only had a few hours to work with says he went boldly to Pilate. I think most of us would assume that this was a bold act, right? But just so we don't miss it, Mark tells us anyway. 
Um, and it says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So think about this. He's a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And amidst all that unbelief, Joseph had put his hope in Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And now his secret is out. There's no more hiding it. So Joseph's action was, was bold on two levels, really. What was the occasion for the disciples to go off and hide in fear? It became the occasion for Joseph to step out, to make himself known and to identify himself with Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were, uh, saw where he was laid. So there were witnesses. Sometimes we sing these lyrics. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why did he go through all of this? He went through this for you. But the cross, as horrifying as it was, wasn't merely our path to life. It was also Jesus' path to glory, if you can believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. We sang about the glory of the cross. We've mentioned this before. The Christian faith is full of paradoxes, is it not? Life comes through death, right? Jesus taught that unless the seed dies and falls to the ground, right? The first will be last. 
To save your life, you must lose it on and on. And here's another one. Glory comes through humiliation. The world says glory comes through what? Self-promotion. Self-exaltation. Striving. Conquest. That's how we get glory. That's what the world says. But Proverbs 15.33 says humility comes before honor. Jesus taught that if you're invited to a wedding feast, what do you do? Go take the, the seat right up front where everyone can see you and say, oh, look at the honored guest. What does Jesus say? No, you go, you go find the, the seat in the dark place where, where you're, so, they, so that you will be honored and brought forward. You humble yourself and you be brought forward. The last thing you want is to take the seat of honor and then be told, no, 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 this is for someone else. You move to the back. Jesus taught this. He reminded us in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And no one ever practiced what he preached better than Jesus. To become great, you must first become least. You must humble yourself. And Jesus demonstrated that to us at the cross. Understand something. There is glory in the cross. It was prophesied all along that Jesus would suffer and die because the very thing that was intended by evil men to bring humiliation was God's way of bringing exaltation and glory to Jesus. Right before the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. There's glory in the cross. Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There is glory in the cross. Isaiah wrote of this glory. After the suffering of his soul, referring to the Messiah, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The cross was Christ's path to glory, and it is our path to life. And this morning we're going to celebrate that. I'm going to ask Phil to come up and lead us in communion.